You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Walt Whitman, the great American poet, was dying, and everybody knew it. Ensconced in his Camden, New Jersey home, the national treasure was so famous by 1891 that his every living moment was reported. In 1890, it was reported that he had a bad cold, but by December 1891, it was sounding like a serious situation. Whitman, the New York Times said, had taken a chill and was quite feeble and apparently restricted in his diet to milk punch and toast. Milk punch popular in the 80s and 1890s. Certainly when one was in an ill condition, the milk was good for the system, nutrition and the like, and tolerated by the stomach. The liquor, it was thought, helped to boost the immune system. The days of the good gray poet were numbered. In one article, the New York Times said, he may die in 48 hours, so the paper wrote. 48 hours passed, but the news was still gloomy. Not even his brother, who called on the house, was allowed to see him in. His presence at the house was announced to Walt, who sent his love down. Christmas 1891, a gift for America. Whitman was feeling a little better. So doctors say he would be good to last at least a few more days. And he even ate a few oysters. The poet who had confounded America with his modern style when he started was by now in the 1890s. The poetry that was the norm. The way poetry should be written. I sing the body electric. The armies of those I love engirth me and I engirth them. They will not let me off till I go with them, respond to them, and describe them and charge them with the charge of the soul. It's shocking at its time for the 1850s. No more to suggest that the body does not corrupt the soul, that it's not one is bad and one is good, the body always disappointing the soul, that they're to some degree the same thing, that there's nothing wrong essentially with the body scandalous in the 1850s too, not understood by most critics, Whitman's work then. His poetry trashed most people, thinking it was a horrible stew, not poetry at all. Except Ralph Waldo Emerson, who went to visit that young poet. Whitman also hinting that the electricity that runs through the body ran through both men and women and people of different ethnicities. That was his message. And the message was received by 1890, though its understanding may not have been complete. When he first started writing and self-publishing his Leafs of Grass, a huge book with a huge preface that he wrote, the preface in dense prose explaining what he was doing, almost as large as the poem himself, shut not your doors to me, proud libraries, he would say in poetry, instead of just saying, hey, listen, I'm going to say something interesting. Shut not your doors to me for what is lacking on your well-filled shelves you need most. I believe there's a bit of poetic arrogance in Whitman in what he said. 
But yet he was prophetic. Now libraries were indeed open to him. Hearts were opened on January 4th into the new year, 1892. America was now more than 200 years old. The Civil War, a quarter century of the past. In the past, America hears Whitman. He's at his last. Is at his last. America reads that Whitman is at his last eating only a small amount of cow's foot jelly. The jelly is made of skimmed fat from a broth, the collagen skimmed up from the top of the soup. Way to get a little protein into a person without having them consume meat, which might be difficult for a weakened patient. The next day, a little toast, brandy, a glass of milk, and a few days later, Whitman was at least able to eat a poached egg and more milk punch. Each bite of his diet reported with a new article in the newspaper. It moved on to the second or third pages of the newspaper. By March 1892, hiccups were upon him. The paper had moved him to the front page for the daily report of the patient in Camden. And March 26, Whitman died. The end was peaceful, the New York Times said. The aged poet, when asked by the physicians if he had any pain, answered, in an almost inaudible no. Whitman belonged to the ages, but was now closer to current style, as was a new strange voice, a woman who had died six years before Whitman did, a recluse, unlike Whitman, in a small New England town, where she was known to wear white and to write letters and poetry really known only to her sister and acquaintances. A friend of her brother called her the myth. Did she even exist at all? But she did, and when Emily Dickinson died, she told her sister, Lavinia, to burn all of her letters, which her sister loyally did. She didn't say anything about the poems, and the family knew that Dickinson had written a few poems. Ten of them were published during her lifetime in small newspapers. They were not prepared for what they found. Her sister found 1,800 poems. Delight becomes pictorial when viewed through pain. More fair, because it's possible that any gain. The mountain at a great distance in amber lies. Approached, the amber flits a little, and that's the sky. And a poem is examining the difference between pleasure and pain. It's written in a weird rhythm. I probably didn't even do it justice. But it nonetheless would have sounded odd to the ears of the 19th century. But odd perhaps in a good way. Well, striking. Because this poem, Dickinson poems, became very popular at this particular time. She's saying that when in pain, delight is not felt very well, but it's seen like you're looking at a painting, at a distant landscape, something that you long for, but it's far away. The amber in the mountain is the flint of the sky. It's not part of the mountain, really. Dickinson collected paintings where many artists would paint the mountains in Massachusetts, near where she lived and paint them with an amber glow. In some ways, it might be odd to say that Dickinson is part of the 1890s. She didn't live during the 1890s. She was already dead. She wrote most of her poems the two decades before. This is when she became part of the American imagination, and in a big way. This is when she became known by more than just a few relatives in a small Massachusetts town. And this decade would see other inventions. Many voices would be brought to the fore, providing tension to the American status quo. 
It would be a decade that would see the invention of very crude radio, the perfection of telephone technology, the acceptance of electricity, and the production of the automobile, the ubiquity of the bicycle, and many attempts to put wings on them. Many attempts to get man in flight, most of which brought men down sooner than they planned. Sometimes the horrible effects. Germans during this decade would launch the first airship, the Zeppelin. And the same country would develop the aspirin product, the pain reliever still used today. American troops, in the same century that they quibbled over even leaving the border into Canada, would be fighting in the jungle in an Asian country in the Pacific on the opposite side of the globe. A pharmacist would come out with a product known as Pepsi-Cola. Spain would leave Cuba, something very significant at the time, because for 400 years the Spanish had been there since Columbus. Many thought it was a terrific achievement that a European power had left the Caribbean. Others doubted that a democracy should be involved in that kind of business. New York City would triple in size in this decade, annexing Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, and Staten Island, all then separate parts of New York State, now in one amalgamated city. It was already the largest in the country. Now it was uncatchable. Marconi would send wireless messages across the Atlantic in this decade. Gold would be discovered in faraway Alaska, and Americans would get there any way they could with pickaxes to earn the fortune in an icy land that we owned, but didn't acknowledge much before that. Antarctica, its outer islands, and then its surface would be touched in this decade. Newsboys in New York would go on strike for better wages. The first counter to the trend of child labor, and one taken by the actors themselves, the children themselves. America would declare its frontier closed, but not without several violent incidents in its west. It would enlarge its navy, From the 13th in the world to the 2nd, it would develop 62 million. It would develop a mechanical counting system, a mechanical computer, you might say, to run its census and grow in that census from 62 million to 76 million persons in a decade. The United Kingdom, from which America won its independence at a mere 30 million at this time. Some call this period the gay 90s, a term that wouldn't have been on anyone's tongue at the time. It came later. Some called it the mauve decade. That, again, is in a book later. But that was due to the popularity of the particular color in women's fashions and in other products. As Scientific Americans said, life in the 19th century was one of gray and black and brown. Purple was merely the stuff of legend until a chemist, Parker, in the 1850s discovered that manipulating coal tar, you could make a dye called mauvine. It would soon become a trend in Europe, and by the 1890s, America was caught in that trend. It was extremely popular. Companies cashed in in the later part of the 19th century. Coal tar formed so many other products. The names of chemical companies today are from the Swiss Basel region. CBG, AGFA, BASF is the last two letters, a soda factory. Started making coal tar and dye and other products. Moth fashion and dresses became all the rage, and a new world of color was opened up. Women's fashions change. Shoulder enhancement, addition to the dresses to make shoulders more prominent, and then gradually, halfway through the decade, slimming down those shoulder appendages, culminating in a modern archetype, 
known as the Gibson Girl, a flawlessly beautiful woman with flowing and voluminous hair, slender, with a nip waist, wearing a shirt waist that was tailor-made in an hourglass fashion, very long dress, then a shoulder dress, almost a V formation. The Gibson Girl was active, played sports, and was confident. She was the creation of Charles Dana Gibson, who based it on his wife. Four men dressed in approved. For men, dress got a little more, we might say, in the casual direction, but still involved the frock coat and the top hat of the earlier 19th century, though nothing as tall as Lincoln's at this time. The lounge suit began making its appearance even to people in business, a single-breasted jacket. It's the kind of suit we know today in that form, but it might be worn with a frock coat over it. It is, as one commentator said, and I think an accurate description, the type of suit that a businessman could wear on a Saturday and a cowboy could wear when they were going to church. Gibson made a choice in his drawings. The women, not the men, were dominant, more beautiful than the men were handsome. One famous drawing has four Gibsonettes with buffoon waterfall girls examining a tiny object under a magnifying glass. And when you look closer, it's a man. This is Gibson. He says there isn't a Gibson girl, but there are many thousands of American girls. And for that, Gibson says, let us all thank God that they are beyond the loveliest of the other sex in the United States. Of course, natural selection. This is the time of its height. This, Dana says, is what's been going on. The eventual American woman will be even more beautiful, he says, than the woman of today. I'm sure a few people raised eyebrows even then. But there is something to it. The Gibson girls were just not objects. Certainly they're objects of Dana's pen. He'd keep doing this for 30 years, in fact. Gibson girls start in the 1890s, but go well into the 1900s and the 19-teens. Harper's Weekly, Scribner's, Collier's, everybody wanted Dana Gibson. When Charles Dana Gibson was not writing, when he was off work and he was thirsty, he'd ask the bartender for a martini. But instead of an olive, he'd ask for a pickled onion. That may be why we call the Gibson cocktail the name today. During this period of the 1890s, Jack London had a number of professions, one of which was an oyster pirate. Now, it may sound more evil than it appears, and in fact, London during the same decade would join the opposite side, but the Southern Pacific Railroad had begun to lease out tracts of its coastal acreage, and these beds had always been considered a public resource, and all of a sudden were transformed into a protected monopoly. The takeover deprived working-class fishermen of a source of income and food. Thus, even though the act became a felony, the police often looked the other way when sailors and small boats continued to harvest oysters from the now private title farms. And these oyster pirates took on the air of local folk heroes. Jack London was one of them. He borrowed money to purchase a small sloop, the Razzle Dazzle, and quickly began his pirating operation. Under the cover of darkness, he would stealthily pilot the sloop into shallow water along the base coastline. Armed guards patrolled the area from raised platforms, and Jack had to be absolutely silent. The smallest knock would be heard. Jack would nose the boat onto shore near an oyster bed, and then he and his partner would climb out into the tidal flat, wade into the thick mud, and fill sack 
after a sack full of oysters. Then as morning dawned, they raced other pirates to Oakland Market, jockeying to be the first to sell their harvested oysters for hefty sums to local restaurant owners. The restaurant owners just wanted good oysters at a good price and didn't ask questions. He was making more money in a week than he could in a whole month working at a factory or cannery. Even the other pirates called Jack Prince of the Oyster Pirates. And being that they were in a profession that wasn't ordained by the law, these were some rough people, but Jack could be rough right along with them. He was full of grit and brass. He started running with gangs, going out gambling and other things. But eventually, Jack started seeing that this wasn't so good. He was either going to get into a life of crime, you know, the next step above Oyster Pirate would be really getting involved in petty theft and beating up people and things like that. So he decided to go the opposite direction. Switching sides, trading in for a badge, and working for the California Fish Patrol. So London was hired. Hey, you're a good pirate. Why don't you catch the people? His job was much like a game warden involved arresting waterborne lawbreakers. Waterborne lawbreakers. Despite his youthful desire to live wild and loose, he had a counterstreak the greatly respected law, the necessity of it. And he found catching people breaking the law just as much fun as breaking it. But eventually, he couldn't resist. There were a gang of teenage hobos skinny dipping, and he decided to take off with them on a tramping journey. He left California for the first time and traveled by foot and rail all the way to the Sierra Nevadas. So much for Jack London's career in law enforcement. It would soon become a career in writing. He's going to get caught up in the late 1890s craze of gold mining in Alaska. He doesn't get any gold, but he gets some great stories. And his published stories to build a fire, call of the wild, will give him a writing career that makes him known till today. There was no other way to describe the St. Louis waterfront except an amalgamation of everything. No single industry dominated commerce there. With riverside land at a premium, the North and South riverfronts were home to businesses of all kinds alongside each other. Breweries smashed up against wagon factories, rail yards bumped up into gas works. Stove manufacturers shared space with sugar refineries. Networks of railroads, railroads, and trolley lines snaked through all of St. Louis. And across the river in East St. Louis, stockyards, meatpacking plants, train yards were turning once empty fields on the riverbank into a mirror of St. Louis's crowded conditions. The waterfront beamed with industry. The city workhouse since 1853 supplied crushed limestone needed to create paved city streets. The ones who did the work, male and female inmates, crushing limestone and hauling building blocks. Lemp and Anheuser-Busch's breweries produced lager beer 
To make it, you needed cold. Then and now, the cold lager stored in basements is free of particles. A row of ice houses on the river could store more than 5,000 tons of ice for this purpose. Banner buggies on River Street produce so many buggies for horse and buggies around the nation that 100,000 banner buggies were in use, it was said, throughout America. When cars came to replace those buggies, no problem. Banner buggies merges with Chevrolet and eventually built cars out of this St. Louis plant. The St. Louis Gas Company provided light to the city and St. Louis spanned with several miles of rectangle blocks. The St. Louis Shot Tower towered over the houses and tenements in the north of the city. It was 175 feet tall. Workers poured molten lead down its tower into a copper sieve. The tower would cool the lead and produce superior buckshot into a cooling pool of water. The St. Louis Grain Elevator on the waterfront produced 2 million pounds of grain per hour. The sugar refinery was the largest in the United States. St. Louis's location on the water on the Mississippi christened the city allowed it to flourish, but it also had its dangers. On 1890, a flood left 50,000 people homeless as water soaked neighborhoods in the city. But water was also something special. St. Louis water at this time, in the 1890s, if a visitor came to St. Louis and asked for a glass of water, they'd get a shock. But it would be a shock that those in St. Louis would expect the water would be chocolate colored. It was right out of the Mississippi. And St. Louisians drank it as best you could to settle the mug and drink it down. St. Louisians actually thought the water was superior. Dr. Charles Pope kept a jar of river mud in his luggage when he traveled from St. Louis and added it to water elsewhere to make that water more healthy. Healthy. Mark Twain found it wholesome and very nourishing. And maybe it was. This is what Twain said. You can separate the water as easy as Genesis. One good to drink the other to eat. Stir it up and take the draft as and eat it as gruel. Whether the water was good or not, it would soon in the early 1900s get polluted because Chicago would start sending its wastewater downstream. One city's growth was another city's problem. The National Association of Women's Suffrage is founded. Elizabeth Cady Stanton is at its head. Wyoming enters the Union in this decade as a state thanks to Congress and Benjamin Harrison's pen. It already has women's suffrage as a territory. It carries that over as a state and becomes the first state 
with women's suffrage. There'll be more in this decade. The labor organization, the American Federation of Labor, supports the cause of women's suffrage. They try, and a united effort in South Dakota is attempted, but are unsuccessful. Not so in Colorado. There they adopt women's suffrage in 1893. And then 600,000 signatures are brought to New York's legislature in Albany in 1893, again, to no avail. Not yet. It'll take another two decades for New York to get it. Utah has suffered as a territory, and it enters the Union in 1896. Idaho adopts it in the same year. In this decade, the movement will not reach a successful conclusion, but there's no turning back. The decade began with the country focused on one particular woman, Nellie Bly. She was a female journalist. She had earned fame for her excellent writing, but also for her stories that exposed the insane asylum. And she herself put herself into one and then wrote about what that experience was like. That attracted a lot of attention. This She had read Jules Verne's book, Around the World in 80 Days, and wanted to beat that record. She traveled to England by steamship from Hoboken, New Jersey, then to France, then across the Suez Canal to India, to Singapore, to Hong Kong. She sends progress reports through telegraphs all along the way, and the country cannot get enough of Nellie Bly. Newspapers ask their readers to guess, where in the world is Nellie Bly at this time? What's her exact location? Steamships and railroads helped her to make this journey. She visits a leper colony in China, sails across the Pacific, and then in San Francisco, gets in a special private train to take her across the country and back to Hoboken, New Jersey. It is 72 days after she left. She's back around the world and then back in that same town. So she's now setting a record for being the first woman to travel across the globe, but it also is really the first person to travel across the globe in less than 80 days. And it's a record. But Bly wasn't done. She'd develop a patent for a new type of milk. She'd run her husband's milk company after his death and continue to fight for women's suffrage. In World War I, she'd become a journalist again. She covered the war. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what 
Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Looking back at my childhood, I am aware of the many things that happened outside our town that figured into our life. These events, both scientific and political, have great historical significance, but as a child I measured their importance only by the effect that they had on my world. I remember that when the first telephone was put in our hotel it was such an unbelievable miracle that a small circle of onlookers gathered just to watch it being installed. What a strange looking gadget. Just an oak panel, less than a yard long, with a box at the top that hung on the wall. Two bells were at the top of the box, below them a spout into which one spoke, which could be moved up or down according to the height of the speaker. An odd-looking contraption, certainly, but oh, the wonders of it. Now a man need not ride wildly for miles on horseback to get a doctor for his wife about to have a baby. He needed only to speak into this instrument. The doctor would come. This is from, as I remember it, Irene Merrill Mason, growing up in 1890s Iowa. She's got some great stories in here. It was an exciting day when I stood at the curb beside my mother and watched our town boys march off to the Spanish-American War. No uniforms, just an array of nondescript garments. A marching band behind them played, When Johnny Comes Marching Home Again. The streets were lined with people waving their hats, cheering them on. But there were mothers there, too, with tears in their eye. Suddenly, as the boys marched by, my mother, a beautiful mother, stepped from the curb in long skirts trailing in the dust, rushed out to kiss one of the marching boys. I was horrified, my childish heart shocked, that my mother would kiss any man but my father. As she stepped back on the curb, I said, Mother, you shouldn't have done that. But what a kind thing she had done. It was Archie, our porter, a man of all trades. She knew Archie was an orphan, and that he and his brother Bill, our day clerk, had been reared in an orphanage. So Archie had no one else to kiss him goodbye. The war was short with few casualties. Within months, the band had played when Johnny Comes Marching Home was playing tunes to welcome them back. Of the 400,000 volunteers, no conscription then, 379 died on the battlefield or of mortal wounds. Our big losses resulted from lack of sanitation. Archie was one of those lucky ones. He came home. Americans were seeing more of the world and traveling more. Their fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers, perhaps, hadn't left their own town or city, their little region, maybe a short train ride. But now the citizens of the New World were visiting that old world and the other continents. By 1900, 100,000 Americans had gone to Europe. People would record their travel to writers because it was so exciting. Walt Whitman's Diary to Canada was recorded. 
John Hay, Mark Twain, Edith Wharton, Ambrose Bierce, Jack London, Booth Tarkington are among the people who would be writing about their travels. Mark Twain's Following the Equator, A Journey Around the World, was a rambling book that talks about a trip from New York to British Columbia, to Hawaii, Sydney, Fiji, Tasmania, Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, Mozambique, Afghanistan. It's not just a travelogue. Twain is against British colonial policies, the treatment of average people, and he lets the reader know it. Yet it has some great images. Here's Twain on Calcutta, India. When we reached the city and glanced down the chief avenue, smoldering in its crushed strawberry tint, those splendid effects were repeated for every balcony and every fanciful birdcage of a snuggery counter sunk in the house fronts, and all the long lines of roofs were crowded with people, and each crowd was an explosion of brilliant color. Then the wide street itself, away down and down and down into the distance, was alive with gorgeously clothed people, not still, but moving, swaying, drifting, eddying, a delirious display of all colors and all shades of color, delicate, lovely, pale, soft, strong, stunning, vivid, brilliant, a sort of storm of sweet pea blossoms passing on the wings of a hurricane. Another popular author was Richard Harding Davis, author star of the 1890s, kind of author celebrity. Here's him writing about Paris in an 1895 book, relating it to Americans. The man who goes to Paris for a summer must be a very misanthropic and churlish individual. If he tires of the boulevards in that short period, there is no place so amusing for the stranger as one of these same boulevards. But to the Parisian, what a bore it must become. That is, what a bore it would be for anyone, save a Parisian. He can have his heart's desire. He need only walk the boulevards for a week, and he will be recognized as a boulevardier. It is a cheap notoriety, purchased at the expense of the easy exercise of walking, and the cost of some few glasses of Bach, with a few cents to the waiter. There was a party of men and women from New York sitting in front of the Café des Pots one night after the opera, and enjoying themselves very much, until one of them suggested they're doing the same thing the next month at home. We will take our chairs and sit at the corner of 26th Street and Broadway at 12 o'clock at night and drink Bach beer. The idea was so impossible that the party promptly broke up and went to their hotels. In Richard Harding Davis's work about Paris, you just see the difference between America at the time, maybe Victorian, and what's going on in Paris, where, you know, now you might walk down the street in New York and see a sidewalk cafe, really emulating the French design, I guess, in some way. But then it was kind of impossible. The best of the boulevards is that the people sitting on their sidewalks and the heavy green trees and the bare heads of so many of the women make one feel how much out of doors he is, as no other street or city does, and what a folly it is to waste time within walls. I do not think we appreciate how much we owe to the women in Paris who go without bonnets. They give to the city so homelike and friendly an air as though every woman knew every other woman so well that she did not mind running across the street to gossip with her neighbor without the formality of a head covering. Americans were not just travel. They were starting to marry into the old world, too. Money-loaded robber barons and their wives made happy travelers. 
but 500 marriages linked American millionaires with European aristocrats in the 1890s. Overall, it cost the United States, or some people in the United States, half a billion in dowries. Consuelo Vanderbilt, Pauline Whitney, were some of the rich Americans married to aristocrats in Europe. And notably, Julia Grant, daughter to the, uh, the now-deceased president, marries a Russian prince in 1899. This has been some of the positive things about the decade we speak of, but the 1890s would be full of strife, a catastrophic depression, unemployed millions, many wandering the country, and there was no safety net for them, no benefit system. The amalgamated iron and steel workers set off in a labor dispute with Carnegie Steel, particularly about the plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania. It wasn't just about money. It was about working hours and workload levels. It was about lowering the work speed to a level of safety. That was an anathema to Carnegie Steel Company. They could tolerate or had tolerated that these workers had bound together in a union and could sit together at a table and listen to them collectively bargain about Perhaps how much they were paid. Okay, the workers wanted one person to talk instead of 3,000. Fine, Carnegie Steel. We'll hear them out. We can say no to one or no to 3,000. They were not interested in giving away too much and not interested in talking about things that didn't have anything to do with what they would normally negotiate with a worker, which was their wages. Frick, the manager of Carnegie Steel, says, how about a 22% decrease? That's where he wants to start his negotiations with this union. How about a 22% decrease? It wasn't a negotiation. Carnegie, Frick, were out to break the union. Carnegie says to Frick in a letter, in case it's not clear, the firm has decided that workers will be non-union by the end of the year. And as we discussed on a previous podcast, Carnegie had made all kinds of positive statements in general, Carnegie the person, about unions. But Carnegie, the business leader, didn't want him in his shop. So when the last agreement with the union expired... Frick locks the doors, locks the workers out of a mill, and surrounds the mill with barbed wire. Around the factory, snipers are set up. Where workers would come to be employed, this was their workplace. Now it looked like an armed fortress. Fort Frick is what the workers called it. All 3,800 homestead unionized workers were then fired and scabs were brought in. It added not only to labor tensions, but also to racial tensions, because some of these scab workers were African-Americans brought in from the South. Not only that, 300 Pinkerton detectives, really guards, soldiers, were hired to keep orders. But at Homestead, before they could get there, the workers knew that the Pinkertons were going to arrive, most logically, by boat up the river. And thousands of workers arrived at the docks, preventing the Pinkertons from landing. When eventually Pinkerton guards tried to get out, the workers and the guards began exchanging fire. The Pinkerton guards surrendered to the workers and were allowed to escape, only to go to the local prison and then sent on a train away. The workers had won, and they soon occupied and took over the steel mill. That was until the Pennsylvania governor set in motion 8,500 soldiers, and a week later, the soldiers secured the plant and brought in the scabs. Workers got sympathy from the public for the homestead strike for the most part, until an anarchist who was not even in the Union tried to assassinate Frick. After that, criminal charges charges were levied against the heads of the Union effort, 
and by November, the union was broken. 12-hour days were established and reduced wages. The Battle of Homestead, in a town near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was one of many such battles in the 80s and 90s. Many labor struggles, probably culminating in the ultimate Pullman car strike, which involved all the railroads heading into Chicago and shut that city down for a time. In New Orleans, there was a general Teamster strike, shut the city to a halt, when gas employees also shut the lights of the city in solidarity. A similar strike in in Buffalo, where switchmen struck the railroad for a 10-hour workday. All of this in 1892. So this is a rough period. It's not just a period where people are wearing purple. We have viral memes today, and some of them are unstoppable as I'm writing this to you. There's this thing going around, and I'm... As I was initially writing this, some of the scrapbook for this for this cast, it was around the time um, the meme was going around with Bernie Sanders sitting in a chair at the inauguration of President Biden with his mittens, and people putting him in all sorts of other, you know, poses and things like that. You know, you had one in the past of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie on the beach at a time when he had banned anyone else from being on the beach. And you have these memes and there's a tendency to think of them as something that's just a product of, you know, 2021. But it's not true. There are all sorts of memes or popular sayings or expressions, pictures, art, types of things that would spread around and become very popular. In 1895, the most successful of the kind, just like, where's the beef? Or wasabi, or whoop, there it is. Or whatever phrase you want to think about in relatively modern times. It was just as infectious, and it spread, and it was the little poem, The Purple Cow. And it just goes like this. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. But I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. That's it. This was published in a little magazine with 3,000 circulation called The Lark. It was supposed to be a joke. What kind of poem is this? It's a problem of nonsense about something that doesn't exist yet. It reappeared again and again in magazines. And it was something that was just said by people, by workers, by school children. It sticks. It sticks a long time. It's in President Truman's head when he was asked about UFOs during his presidency. He repeated this poem. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. But I can tell you anyhow, I'd rather see than be one. That's how influential this poem had been in the 1890s. Gillette Burgles, the person who had written the poem two years later, writes in that same magazine, The Work. Oh, yes, I wrote The Purple Cow. I'm sorry now I wrote it, but I can tell you anyhow... I'll kill you if you quote it. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Another fad was The Beautiful Joe. It was a book. It was a story about a dog, and it's told from the dog's point of view. My name is Beautiful Joe, and I am a brown dog of medium size, and called Beautiful Joe because I have a beauty. Miss Morge, the clergy, he says that I must be called Beautiful for some reason. Now, I am an old dog now, and I am writing, or rather getting a friend to write this. It sounds silly, but this book, Beautiful Joe, told from the perspective of that dog, sold a million copies, and was in every child's bookshelf, reading it or read to them. School children arriving at schools, and there are more schools now than ever before in America. They probably had to bow or curtsy to the teacher who absolutely controlled that classroom or wrapped in the knuckles by the teacher, and no one would say anything of it. Or for a minor offense, you might just be embarrassed. The old dunce cap or the nose hole where you'd clasp your hands behind your back and press your nose against a circle drawn on the chalkboard, and you'd have to remain there in front of the entire class thinking about what you've done. In better times, in school for recess, you might play A over. Now, what's A over? Well, think of it as kind of a volleyball. But there's no net. Instead of a net, you use a house. Or a building. Here's how it goes. Two teams will be playing on one side, on on each side of the school building, toss a ball over and say, A over, as they serve. It was up for the other team to return the ball. A over. Now, we said this was close to volleyball, right? They wouldn't know volleyball, because volleyball would just be invented in this decade. A Massachusetts phys ed instructor looking for a way to get some energy out of the kids during a rainy season, wanting to keep his players active and find some game to play, developed the game of basketball using a soccer ball, which looks something like today's basketball. Then if it was an associated football or soccer ball, it was brown. Then the uh, associated football ball was brown. Had a leather look. It was something like a basketball today. You could dribble it. 
and eventually, a few years, developed the rule that you couldn't double dribble. And they would use peach baskets. Great way to reuse something. And the team scoring the ball in the basket the most times, under a rigorous defense, would win the game. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. It's 1893, October 16th, when American sisters Patty Hill and Mildred J. Hill copyright their book, Song Stories for the Kindergarten, including a song, Good Morning to All. And the melody that goes like that, Good Morning to You, is later adapted, without any authorization from the Hills, by Robert Coleman as Good Morning to You, with the second stanza containing the words, to happy birthday to you, which we know now as that song. The original Hill Sisters song went, Good morning to you, good morning to you, good morning, dear children, good morning to all. Not only were the Hill Sisters able to successfully engage in a copyright lawsuit in 1934 and earn money, That happy birthday song has actually been under copyright for some time, just recently expired. All the rage in 1890 was the Turkish couch. After an exhibition in America, it became famous. Average Americans in their house of somewhat modest means started seeking out Turkish couches and carpets. Your mom might keep it in one corner, and you might be using it while you're playing a game with your family. Games were quite frequent. Chinese checkers, very common. A chess variant named Kriegsfeld, which is German for war game, where it's chess with a variant. The players cannot see the opponent's pieces. And how do you do it? Well, there's no computers, and there are you know computer versions of Kriegsfeld you could play now, but Kriegsfeld you could play now, but you would have three boards. One player, board for the second player, And then in the middle, an umpire who sees the whole boards and tells player if their move is legal or not and what happened to their pieces. It's like chess with the fog of war introduced. The game of playing department store, that is the title of the game. The game of playing department store was another popular board game. It had a board with all sorts of products, luggage, handbags, thimbles, candy, flowers, toys, even canaries, and an elephant. The players would pull a card, a card showing the amount of money they could spend, and a counter showing a department. The player could then choose an item of the value they had purchased and put their counter on top of it. The team at the end with the most products covered would win the game of shopping. This was towards the end of the decade of the 1890s when having money in your pocket might be something people could understand more than in the beginning when the nation was in absolute depression. But perhaps the most truly popular game involved crime fighting. Rival Policemen, the board game, was a craze. It involved competing teams of police that were struggling to capture the most wanted felons, chasing them around the board. Now that sounds silly today. Why would a city have competing teams of police? Crazy. The board showed various areas of the city, park squares, city buildings of City Hall, and two police departments chasing their felons through the board trying to score the most captures. The game is based on the actual situation in New York City, where there are state police and city police, and they are bickering about who would offer police protection and catch the most criminals. In the beginning of the decade, 
and in the real world. A force to be reckoned with in policing was a rapidly rising politician, Theodore Roosevelt, one of many commissioners of the New York City police, but you hardly knew he was one of many because he was getting all the quotes in the newspaper, all the press, all the attention. It seemed that he was policing New York City himself, Roosevelt. Certainly, he was going out at night with undeniable energy and watching as various police were not at their correct stations or sleeping on the job. He was waking them up. It must have been the surprise of their life to be shaken and woken up by the commissioner. One of Theodore Roosevelt's initiatives during this time, which was difficult but a challenge for him, was enforcing New York City's on-the-books requirement of no selling of liquor on Sundays. This was very unpopular. Not only because there were many saloons in the city, not only because there was a German-American population that saw beer drinking as part of their normal, even their family life, but also because many cops were on the take or derived income from allowing bars and restaurants to ignore this rule on the books. Theodore Roosevelt was most interested in discontinuing that status quo. Here's what Edmund Moore says of uh, him and the rise of Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was not the first authority to invoke the law that year. Ex-police Chief Burns, for example, had arrested a record 334 saloon keepers on one Sunday in January. But as Roosevelt pointed out, his victims had been chosen carefully. The law was enforced with corrupt discrimination. Burns would never have permitted the booking of a King Callahan. Now everybody was arrested alike. And as Roosevelt said, I took special pains to see that the big men, the bosses, and the men with political influence were treated like everyone else. As a result, June 30th, 1895 was voted the driest Sunday in seven years. 97% of the city's watering holes were closed, slowing to a trickle. The normal Sunday flow of three million glasses, glass bottles of beer, Boats seemed to be everywhere, waving aside bribes with loathing and writing out summonses for the slightest sign of resistance. Some enterprising saloon keeper sought to evade the law by serving meals with their drinks in the form of token sandwiches. These were placed on barroom tables with the tacit understanding that they were for display purposes only and left to curl up at edges while patrons would wash them down with liquor. That's a very interesting point because that particular thing in the COVID year of 2020 came back a bit, right? You had in New York City strict restrictions about bars being closed, but you did have this sort of token food that some of them tried to offer. In any case, in the 1895 example, Roosevelt was sternly disapproving and would order plainclothesmen to monitor all aging sandwiches in the future to make sure the sandwiches were being eaten. The legal ratio, he said, was one drink per sandwich. They were meant to be consumed simultaneously. I guess there were a few people who tried to eat a few sandwiches on one day and then tank up on another. Coffee vendors found that a heavy infusion of cognac into every cup greatly increased their sales. We're at a German beer garden in Lexington Avenue. Requests for lemon soda, plain soda, and cold tea were met white wine, gin, and whiskey, respectively. Anguish protests came in from Tammany politicians, most notably the former governor, David Hill, now a United States senator. Called Theodore Roosevelt a busybody seeking notoriety. The commissioners were arbitrary, harsh. Told commissioners, 
The one glass of beer with a few crackers at a restaurant is just as much a poor man's lunch on a Sunday as Mr. Roosevelt's elaborate champagne dinner at the Union League Club. In fact, the Democratic judge, being smart, handed down an alarming decision that if you interpreted New York's law literally the way Roosevelt was, it would be that all drinks on the Sabbath would be banned. That includes milk and lemonade. Only water to drink now, said the New York Herald sarcastically. Roosevelt wasn't one to back down. And when he was invited to a large meeting of German-Americans in the Good Government Club on the 16th of July, he accepted that invitation. No one expected him to. In New York City, there lived some 760,000 industrious beer-drinking Germans, mostly middle class, sentimentally attached to the old world and fiercely loyal to their adopted country. The reaction to Roosevelt's speech was therefore eagerly awaited. Roosevelt said that Senator Hill has done me the honor to take me as the type of his political methods and political views and singled me out for attack in connection with the excise law. His complaint is that I honestly enforced the law that Tammany put on the books. It is natural that he and Tammany should grow wild with anger at the honest enforcement of law for it was a law that was intended to be the most potent weapon in keeping the saloon subservient allies to Tammany Hall. So Roosevelt's saying it's not just to stop people drinking, he's taking on corruption. Yet the newspapers, the World and the Herald of New York, devoted page after page to Teddy's folly, characterized him as a spirited Dutchman, bent on driving the innocent citizens out of New Amsterdam. But Roosevelt's astonishing But Roosevelt gained national prestige at odds with his unpopularity in New York City. The whole country, it seemed, was talking about Theodore Roosevelt one way or the other, and he was successful. There has not been... It was said there had not been a more complete triumph of law in the municipal history of New York or the London Times. He closed the saloons and got large crowds of poor people to respect him for it. (laughs) That's what the London Times says. Mayor Strong of New York, William Strong, would join many people who had hired Roosevelt and then started to chafe at his subordinate under him. I thought I would have a pretty easy time until the police board came along and tried to make a Puritan out of a Dutchman. America couldn't just get its way even as it increased on the international stage in the 1890s, couldn't just get its way in every international policy venture that it wanted. The 1890s still finds the U.S. as not the largest country in international affairs yet. And even its attempt to build a controlling hegemony in Americas, in the Americas, an American coalition that can rival the old world with the new one, gets off to a rocky start. It is the project. The goal of Secretary of State James Blaine. In fact, he's Secretary of State twice, once during the Garfield administration until that president's assassination, and then again in Benjamin Harrison's administration. He tries the first time in the 1880s to get this done, cannot get all the countries together. He tries again in the early 1890s, and there is a meeting of 26 Uh, delegates from 13 countries. The United States has kind of in its pocket at this time, Mexico. 
the authoritarian ruler of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz, is closely allied with business interests in the United States. But other nations were not so pro-U.S. In fact, the Americans were outnumbered by other countries. Leadership among the Latin American nations is exercised by the delegations from Argentina and from Chile, partially because their delegates are skilled in diplomacy, but also because Argentina has a special relationship with some European countries, and Chile is becoming a Pacific power of its own with a navy that even in the 1890s is rivaling at least a Pacific fleet of the United States. So the first thing that happens is Blaine wants to be the chair of this great international conference as the U.S. Secretary of State, and he's denied it. Now, it's done on a technical issue that Blaine was technically not a delegate to this conference. What Blaine is looking for in the um, Conference of the Americas is to have an arbitration procedure for disputes between nations. But the Argentinians object that the United States was seeking hegemonic arbitration, which they probably were. There's also tension over the question of whether military conquest could result in the acquisition of sovereignty after a war. This is not just a theoretical concern. Chile had beaten Peru and Bolivia in a War of the Pacific in 1879 to 1881 and acquired territory via this. The conference failed to reach agreement on many points and failed to reach agreement on the establishment of an effective customs union. But there were some agreements on commercial and trade matters. But of course, the 1890s, you have to talk about populism. December 1890, the National Farmers Alliance and the Industrial Union, the Southern Farmers Alliance, its affiliate, the Colored Farmers Alliance, the Farmers Mutual Benefit Association meet jointly in Florida, Cala, Florida, the Marion Opera House, and adopt the Acala Demands. Calls for the abolition of national banks, the establishment of sub-treasuries or depositories in every state that would make low-interest direct loans to farmers and property owners, the increase of money in circulation to not less than $50 per capita, the abolishment of futures of all agricultural and mechanical productions, the introduction of free silver, the prohibition of alien ownership of land, the reclamation of all lands held by railroads and other corporations in excess of what was actually used and needed by them, held for actual settlers only, legislation to ensure one industry would not be built up at the expense of another, and removal of the tariff tax on necessities of life, an income tax, limitation of national and state revenues to the necessary expenses are all part of what they're asking for. They become the People's Party in 1892, and those Akala demands of 1890 are incorporated into the party's Omaha platform. That ticket of James Weaver and James Field will get 8.5% of the popular vote and carry four western states. There's a lot of offshoots of the populist movement. Tom Watson is a southern populist, and he has a solution. His populist party, of which he was the most prominent southern member of, would address the race problem in the country by addressing the common interest of black and white farmers. He would say things like, you are kept apart, mainly so that you can be separately fleeced of your earnings. You're made to hate each other because it's upon that hatred rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism, which enslaved you both. You're deceived and blinded. Indeed, 
when Coxey's army marches across the country to Washington to illuminate the plight of the impoverished, they are not segregated as would be the custom at that time. Shunned at regular churches, they're welcomed at black churches as they march to Washington. Populist Republicans, white and black, were able to take North Carolina's government from Democrats for several years. Novelist Hamlin Garden in his 1897 book said, Poverty has few distinctions among its victims. The Colored Farmers Alliance of Southern sharecroppers were African American was an essential building block of that National People's Party. It wouldn't last, and the commitments of everyone were not so sincere, particularly in the South, where prejudices died hard. Indeed, Tom Watson, who was not overtly racist in the beginning, later in the 19-teens, will revive his career coming out as a segregationist. Women are also part of the populist movement, much more than any other kind of politics up until that time. Mary Elizabeth Lees was the one who told Kansas populists to raise less corn and more hell. Annie Diggs, according to a Kansas City newspaper, was the unqualified dictator of Kansas populists. This is, you know, something important to note. Um, And this movement will really, and it'll only take four years for the political effects to happen because the 1896 Democratic nominee will be William Jennings Bryan. And he's definitely picked as a way to get that popular vote on the Democrat. You know, they're looking at, oh, you know, today we look at 8.5% and say, what's that? That's not a lot. But if you're looking at a swing, that's a great amount of voters and also states in the Electoral College. And if you can swing that to your side. This is from, as I remember it, Irene Merrill Mason, growing up in 1890s Iowa. Iowa's untamed, unfenced prairie was a riot of wildflowers growing in the tall glasses. Tiger lilies, sweet William, black-eyed Susan, almost any wildflower you could ask for. So we kids would wade into the swamps and get them for her. May basket day. Hang your basket filled with flowers on a friend's door, ring the bell, and run. No one wanted to get caught in the act of delivering a May basket. The secrecy of the ritual made May Day both exciting and fun. Our preparations for May Day began well over a week before the big day. We'd begin by going around to our local stores for pasteboard boxes to trim. Mother would set up a table in the living room, produce a bottle of white paste, blunt end scissors, and we'd go to work. Mother was always around to help us. The best thing was she liked to do things like that. She was a mother who enjoyed playing and working with her children. Flower picking was as much fun as making the baskets. For several years, we had a wonderful Sunday school teacher who just before May Day would take us out to Hog's Back, a wooded hill on the edge of town where every kind of wildflower imaginable grew. Bluebells, violets, and my favorite, Dutch man's britches. Though the distance from town was a good mile or more, we always walked, trudging along in the hot Iowa sun. How cool the woods. How soft the grass when we finally reached our destination. That's it for this 1890s. Um, There's a lot more. I have a whole book about um, various interesting developments of the gay 90s, the 1890s. Not so gay during Depression, the rest of it. A lot of things happened that, that we'll get into in the next one.